Lord, we offer up our gifts this morning that you might um, bless our work and that these offerings might be used for your purposes, for the gospel to be spread here in our community and all over the world. Lord, we know that the word of God is not chained, that it goes forth and produces fruit all over the world. And we pray, O oh God, that as the water covers the sea, O oh Lord, that your gospel, the message that saves, would cover this earth and that as the gospel is preached to all nations, your end, your return, and the end will be near. Lord, we um, thank you for this morning again. We commit it on to you. We are mindful of the profound uh, event that is about to take place as we unfold the word of the living God. We live in such a shallow, temporal, fleeting culture, fast-paced mindset where um, everything is just so visual, experiential, and it's just so shallow. It is a difficult for us, Lord, to think deeply, to concentrate, to focus and meditate upon lofty things on the awesome truths of Scripture. Oh Lord, without Your help and assistance, without the Holy Spirit working in us, we are without help. It is far too difficult a work for us. So we humbly ask You, that you would aid and assist us this morning, that we would uh, know and savor Christ in the Scriptures, we would taste and see, and that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are in the law of the Lord. Lord, we humbly ask that we would be alive, we would be alert, our hearts would be passionate, like hungering souls, like thirsting souls, We would hunger and thirst for the Word of God, the water of God's Word, and the bread of life. And that your people would be satisfied. Your people would delight in in the feast that you provided for us. And thus, you would inhabit the praises of your people. We thank you, O Lord, for this morning. We thank you for the songs that we were able to sing to you and to exhort one another. We thank you for the prayers. And we thank you for this time now and time to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, good morning, everyone. It is good to be back together as a church. There was definitely a sense of um, lack of wholeness as we separated the two groups in the past two retreats, singles and marrieds. It is a joy to come back together as one church where our identity is not in our singleness or whether we're married or have children or not. Our identity is that we are Christians, that we are worshipers of Christ here at Cornerstone. And so let us uh, savor this time together as we worship our, our Christ. Now, since we are in between books, finish the Gospel of John, um, mid July, we will begin the study of our next book early December, but since we are in between between the study of books, the elders thought it was a good opportunity for us to do some topical studies, some topical studies. 
So we have decided to do a nine-part sermon series on the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. For nine Sundays, we are going to, as a church, on Sunday mornings, study together um, our membership class. We are going to study the nine sessions that we give for our membership class on Sunday mornings. It's good. A review for all of our members. Some of you haven't taken FOF for over six, seven, eight years, possibly. And good for you and us to study and, and, and review these teachings together. For those who are about to take our FOF class, God has blessed you greatly. I mean, God really loves you because you have the largest FOF class in the history of Cornerstone where we can sit together and um, plumb the depths of these truths as a body of believers together on Sunday mornings. You will still meet second hour starting next week with the FOF class, but it'd be a, a shortened version, a lot more Q&A, a lot more dialogue, just uh, having an identity as a class, turning in papers and so forth. But the main instructions will be done on Sunday mornings. Now you might ask, why are we studying these nine fundamental doctrines, cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith? As I was thinking through that this week, so many reasons came to mind. Enough to fill a whole sermon. I reduce it down to just three reasons why we are studying these doctrines together. The first reason is to grow in a deeper, to grow in deeper and reverent worship of God. The ultimate purpose of studying these doctrines is that we might grow in worship that we might grow in reverence towards God, that we might understand God in a greater way, so that we might love Him more, honor Him more, cherish Him more, and glorify Him more. These doctrines of the Bible are not just subjects to be studied. No. We ought, all of us, should desire to know them in order that, having known them, we might draw near to God. Knowing that the Bible teaches us that we cannot draw near to God apart from the Scriptures. That our nearness to God is dependent, is contingent upon our knowledge, our understanding of these truths. That God is not to be known through our experiences our emotions, our feelings. But God has revealed Himself through Christ and Christ through this book, the Bible, these principles, these truths, these doctrines. And that is the way we come to know God and love Him and worship Him. And that is the ultimate purpose for our study. We teach these doctrines with the prayer that God might bless our studies and usher in a true revival in our church. Elders believe we need revival. That each of us as Christians and as a church, we need reformation. We need renewal. We need revival in the innermost parts of our being. We need a renewal in our love for Christ. Our love for Christ, our first love for Christ is is lacking. Our hearts are often cold and hard without passion when we go to Him in prayer, 
when we hear His Word, when we fellowship with one another, our love for Christ is lacking. We need revival. We need revival in our worship of God, in our obedience to His commands, where we, as a body of believers, will not consider obeying God as burdensome, but as a privilege. And we would all agree we need revival in our prayer lives. Our prayer lives are so weak, so sporadic, so infrequent, just so short, just so short. We need revival in holy and righteous zeal. And church history shows us that true revival has always followed biblical God-exalting instruction. True revival always followed when a man of God exposited scripture, declared the whole counsel of God's word, when he plumbed the depths of these glorious doctrines, gave birth to them in his heart, and proclaimed them with his mouth. When any church was faithful to do these things, true revival followed. Revival followed because these doctrines remind and reveal to us the wide chasm, the infinite chasm that separates us from God, reminds us of that. God is, we're so chummy with God. We have this kind of cheesy familiarity with God because of the, our flesh, sin in our flesh, because of our pride, because of our idolatrous notions of God, because of our culture, because of pop Christianity. We have this wrong, man-centered familiarity with God and we study these doctrines, it reminds us that God is transcendent, that God is glorious, that God is thrice holy and reminds us of the depths that we are in and our depravity and our sinfulness. These doctrines unveil God's uniqueness, His awesome glory and power. They tear away brick by brick our man-centered conceptions of Him. These truths pound away our idolatrous thoughts of Him and replace them with the right thoughts, with biblical truths about God. And in this way, they help us as believers to grow in holy zeal and piety in our worship of God. That is why we are beginning our, we are doing this study. Because we want to love God more. If not, just to, where knowledge puffs up, where we know more facts, you know, the trivia pursuit. We know more information, data from the scriptures. That is not the purpose at all. Far from it. Our purpose is, is love God more. Second purpose is to grow in humility. To grow in humility individually and cornerstone, we need to grow in humility as a church. Earnest, sincere humility, that is not a personality trait. You know, it's not a posture of how we stand or how we walk. You know, if you walk with your head bowed low, you're a humble guy, you know. If you walk with your head, you know, high, you're a proud, proud. No, that's not what we're talking about. Humility that is lived out in the real world. Purity that is part and parcel of our character. It's, it's our thinking. It's how we live. It, it's, it's in our verbiage. It's in our words. It's in our attitudes. It, it, it's pervasive in our relationships. That kind of humility. We, won't, we need to grow and it's not an option for us. That is the purpose of our studies. There is nothing more distasteful than pride in a Christian. 
nothing more distasteful than pride in a Christian and nothing more inspiring and encouraging than genuine humility in a believer. Nothing more. When I see a man humble, I am jealous. I am envious. God, give me such grace. Why, O oh Lord, do you keep me feeding off the grovel that's thrown away from the table of the uh, 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 master's home? Why will you not allow me to feast on the master's table directly by growing in humility? That's why doctrine is so important. I know of no other way to grow in humility and help other believers to grow in humility apart from studying, examining, and appropriating biblical and scripture-rich doctrines. I know no other way. It's not through ministry. It's not through being used by God. You don't grow in humility. I've experienced suffering. I've experienced physical pains. i experienced loss in my life, in my family. But compares, pales in comparison to Biblical doctrine, how it humbles us. These doctrines humble us because they teach us again how awesome our God is, how glorious He is. They teach us, reminds us that He is the creator of all things. That He created us. That He is the author, the sole author of our salvation. And every bit of our sanctification that we cannot take credit for anything that we have done in our lives, that anything that is good, anything that's virtuous, noble, and right, it's of the Lord. Apart from Him, we are nothing. These doctrines remind us that without His love, mercy, and grace, we are powerless in our sins and we, without hope. These doctrines deal a death blow to our pride, strikes a pivotal blow to our pride, our fierce and mortal enemy. That is with us to our death. Our only weapon is the Word of God against our pride. These biblical truths force us to see ourselves as we truly are, magnifying His glory and at the same time magnifying our shame and thus brings us low. I love these doctrines. I love these truths because they put me in my place. My heart often contends for preeminence. My heart contends for supremacy. I dare compete with God for His glory. And these precious truths of the Scriptures pierces my, pierce my heart and puts me in my place and steadily holds Christ in the rightful place on the throne of my heart. Without these doctrines, we will be deceived knowledge of scripture, involvement in ministry, are being used by God, being set apart from this world, it will cause us to be deceived and led astray and grow puffed up in knowledge without these fundamental principles about who God is, the authority of the Bible, who we are apart from Christ and how God saved us, we will be full of ourselves and empty of Christ. There's no other way for humility. We must know these truths. And we must privatize them, each of us. 
must have, we must go in the ring along with these truths. Right? Man to man, woman to scripture, in a sense, right? Go in the ring by yourselves and face up to them and privatize it. Doctrines of God, what do I believe? What are my conceptions of God? What do I believe about total depravity? What do I really believe about election? What does my heart say about Lordship salvation? We cannot just believe these truths in general and say, yes, I agree. No, we must privatize them, individualize them. They must be in our DNA, the very fabric of our being if we are to grow in humility. And thirdly, we are studying these truths because they are the foundation of our church. These truths of Christ and from Christ are the foundation of our church. It's the constitution of our church, if you will. They are the principles upon which our church stands. Without them, we will fall upon ourselves like a deck of cards. They are utterly fundamental. We cannot, cornerstones cannot exist without these truths. Alistair McGrath said, Inattention to doctrine robs the church of a reason for existence and opens the way to enslavement and oppression by the world. They are, as repeated so often, the basis of our unity. These truths are why we stand alone together. See, we must stand alone in these doctrines because if we don't, we're not standing together. Unity apart from these truths is a false and fleeting unity. True and lasting unity exists only when we individually and corporately believe in these doctrines. Apart from them, there is no unity. One dear sister likened her love for Cornerstone with the wave at Dodger Stadium. She loves Christ Church so much that the exuberance, her passion, her heart is parallel to those Dodger fans when they you know, hit four home runs at the bottom of the ninth and two run home or two win, lose three games after that. But still, that night, it was glorious. And they do that wave. Her love for Christ Church is parallel to that. But I, she'll agree If you love Cornerstone, apart from loving these doctrines, your love is not true. You feel, it feels true. I know, you experience it. Your your heart is warmed by Cornerstone. But if your love for our church is apart from the love for these doctrines, that is not genuine Christian love. It is like the way when you're winning, but leaving in the seventh inning when you're losing. That kind of love. These reasons are behind our passion for these cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. This is why our passion is to proclaim the fundamentals again and again. Again and again and again with clarity and precision. This is why our passion is to shepherd you according to these fundamental doctrines again and again and again and again so that we might grow in our worship of God and be transformed into the likeness of Christ in every way. So, 
before we start our study of our next book, we have a very sweet journey, satisfying, glorious journey ahead of us. Nine Sundays. For some of you, it's been years. You heard a study on some of these doctrines. For some of you, it's a quick review. But for all of you, it'll be very precious, very sweet. Let's get to our first study. And if you know our F membership class, you know it's the, the, the topic, the title is The Importance of Doctrine. Importance of Doctrine. Before we get to the importance part, we must look at the doctrine part. What is doctrine? We throw around that word all the time here at Cornerstone. What is the definition of doctrine? The Greek word is didaskalia. It means instruction, systematized information, or teaching. I like Wayne Grudem's simple definition of doctrine. Doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us about some particular topic. Doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches us about some particular topic. So, it's systematized instruction. What the whole Bible says about a certain subject, certain issue. Doctrine can be broad or narrow. It can be doctrine of God. And Stephen Charnock wrote, what, 1,500 pages on the existence and attributes of God. It can be very broad. Or it can be very narrow. Doctrine of God's justice. These are all, the following are all doctrinal statements. There are no chapter and verse. These These are not direct quotations from scriptures. But they are unified statements about what the Bible teaches us about these topics. For example, Jesus saves sinners. That's not a verse in the Bible. But it's a doctrinal statement, biblical statement, telling us what the Bible teaches us about Christ, His role for saving sinners. We sang the song today. Jesus is coming back someday. The return of Christ. Everyone who believes in Jesus is saved. All doctrinal statements. These are all summaries of what Scripture says. And as such, they are theological, doctrinal statements. Doctrine, that word gets a bad rap. Many Christians say it causes controversy, it divides, causes strife. We should not, we should do away with doctrine. Can we all just hold hands, you know, sing kumbaya and have warm and fuzzies for one another and live for Christ? As long as our hearts are right, long as Jesus is in the center, is that okay? Why do we need doctrine? Doctrine is a biblical term. It is found in the scriptures. Let me just read to you some scripture passages that talk about doctrine. In Mark 7, 6 and 7, our Lord said to them, What well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Our Lord's condemnation, indictment against these Jewish leaders was that they were teaching their doctrines, their teachings, 
fancy thoughts of their own minds as if they were authoritative doctrines of God. 1 Timothy 4, 6, Therefore Paul said, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, good doctrine that you have followed. You're a good minister. If you don't teach man-centered, man-produced doctrines, if you're not trained by them, you're a good colossal servant. If you are trained and teach biblical doctrines. Titus 1.9, one of the qualifications for elders is that he understands doctrine, sound doctrine. He's able to teach it and refute those propagate error. Paul emphasizes right doctrine in 1 Timothy 4.16. Watch, examine, be alert to two things in your life. Watch your life and watch your doctrine. Titus 2.1, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of the truth, who rightly divides, rightly cuts the word of God. Doctrine is just systemized teaching from the scriptures. It's in the Bible. The next question is, why is it important? Why study doctrine? give you several reasons. First of all, doctrines are just ideas. And ideas are powerful. And ideas have real life consequences. You realize that the most powerful thing in the world are ideas. It's not guns. It's not weapons. It's not a tank. It's not a missile. The most powerful thing in the world ideas and everything therefore is created twice in our minds and then we act upon them it's created between our ears so what goes on in our ears is utterly important because every action is produced by ideas you're here because you believe a certain idea or ideas the work you pursue is because what you believe in your minds you know, the wife you have or the wife you want to have is all what you believe in your minds, what you value, what you cherish. Your character, your attitudes, your behavior all flow from our minds, head to our heart, to our hands. You want to change behavior? You got to begin in the mind because everything is created first in our minds. Continue on that train of thought. Wrong ideas, therefore, are not just wrong, they're dangerous because they dictate our behavior. Wrong ideas produce wrong life, wrong decisions, wrong attitudes. Wrong ideas aren't just wrong. Now, some wrong ideas, right, are just, right, if you, whatever, I don't know, if you think angels have a chance, right, you're wrong, (laughs) but no harm done, okay? You're not going to, No harm done. But some wrong ideas aren't just wrong in that level. They're dangerous. Um, We use this in our welcoming uh, ministries. So Eugene, you don't have to do that today. Uh, Read of a story years ago 
of a lady. She was uh, involved in some accident. A simple blood transfusion could have saved her life. A simple blood transfusion, but she refused. And so a husband lost his wife. Children lost their mom because of wrong doctrine. She was part of the Jehovah's Witness Church. They believe the doctrine that the soul of a person is in the blood. And if you have a blood transfusion and you get the blood of an unbeliever, you go to hell. So because of that, she would not receive a blood transfusion and she died. Wrong doctrine. She died unnecessarily. Children are going to grow up without a mom because some man-made idea was, was uh, taught in a man-made church and she believed it. What about those guys in San Diego? Some of you guys may be too young for this. The Hale Bop cult. Right? These internet web designers, web engineers, they believed that the Hale Bop comet was their savior. UFOs coming to save them. And so the years before they castrated themselves, they all committed suicide. And people think they were crazy. They were nuts. They were not crazy. They weren't nuts. They were deceived. They believed the wrong things. You know, last summer I went to Auschwitz, the second most disturbing place I went to in my life. Right? I haven't been to many places, so second most disturbing places. Disturbing place. The most disturbing place was the Temple Square in Salt Lake City, Utah, the Mormon Temple. There were, and that was more disturbing because that's happening today. Now, how is this possible? How can these people kill men, women, and children? And how can these people believe and live out? Um, such wrong things about the scriptures. They're not crazy. They're deceived. They were deceived and they are deceived. They're believing in the wrong things. Wrong ideas must be confronted because they, have, they can have disastrous consequences. And sad to say, wrong doctrines are flourishing in the church today. If any place wrong doctrine is alive, safe, and well, is in churches in America. The cancer spreading without end. It's amazing to me how educated men and women, like scientific minds, come to the walls of a church and they literally turn their minds off and believe in the most absurd, ludicrous things. You know, years ago I was talking to a gal and she was a UCSD med student, a medical student. And I was telling them, yeah, these days, anything and everything is going on in the church. It's like chaos. It's like just you know, absurd, the things that they're doing. Where I read of a church where ushers um, walk up and down the aisle with Polaroid cameras. Because the new miracle is your silver fillings turning to gold. How God is performing these miracles. And can you believe that? They're actually taking pictures. and These are miracles. Prosperity gospel. Cover of time this past week. And so much so, silver fillings are turning to gold. And she said, Pastor James, I go to a church that does that. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was half worried. Did I just offend you? Are you going to get angry? She was like, I always thought it was kind of weird, but they were all doing it, so I didn't know what to do. Should I leave this church? I was like, yeah, like yesterday. Like, you know, you're two years too late. I mean, you're a UCSD med student. I mean, you're used to thinking, critical thinking. You, you know the scriptures. But how do you get from the New Testament teaching our Romans to silver filling turning to gold? I mean, it makes no sense. But 
because of people's simple mindset, wrong doctrine is, is flourishing in the churches today, where there's serious error being taught, heresy being taught in the churches. And so doctrine is important. Because wrong ideas, wrong doctrines are just, are just wrong. We must confront them in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own churches, and in this world. Secondly, doctrine is important because there are only two kinds of doctrines. Two kinds of doctrine. Right doctrine and wrong doctrine. And wrong doctrine always produces wrong life. Doctrine is important because wrong doctrine always produces wrong life. So you might say, Pastor James, you know, I'm just a lay guy. You know, you pastors, you scholars, you theologians, you guys wrestle with doctrine and theology. I'm just a lay person. I'll just worry about my prayer life and QT and, and four spiritual laws for evangelism. Doctrine is not for me. You do not realize it's not an option for you. You already have a doctrine. You already have a conception of God. When we sang this morning, you had an understanding of God whom you're worshipping. When you pray, you're a doctrine of prayer. When you're reading scripture, you already have an interpretation of that text. The only, the question is not right or wrong doctrine for you. The question is not whether you have doctrine or not. The question is, is your doctrine correct? Or is your doctrine incorrect? Is your doctrine biblical, God honoring? Or is it unbiblical? dishonoring to Christ. And if you have wrong doctrine, that is a reason for your wrong life. You know, my wife was counseling a lady from another church and her life was a mess. Her life was just difficult with her family. It was very, just a lot of poor decisions, a lot of foolish things. And she was saying, and, she, and that, that lady held firmly to her, her doctrines Someone was saying, well, I'm not saying your doctrine is completely wrong, but there must be some error in your thinking for your life to be this way. Would you agree with that? Look at your life. Look at how you're living. Look at uh, the pain in your life. The source of your pain is because you believe certain wrong things. Do you see that now? We're not saying everything is wrong, but there are certain parts of your thinking that are inconsistent with Scripture, causing you to have wrong attitudes, wrong decisions, wrong behavior, causing pain, dishonoring Christ. Severe consequences. Wrong doctrine always produces wrong life. Wrong map, you always get lost. Right? You have a wrong map, you're going to get lost. Right doctrine is necessary for right life. Doesn't guarantee it. Just because you have the right map doesn't mean you're going to find where you're going to go, right? It, it helps you. It, it, it's necessary, right? It'll, it'll give you a, a fighting chance to find where you're going, but doesn't guarantee it. Right. Likewise, right doctrine, like oxygen is necessary for fire, right doctrine is necessary for right life. Makes right life possible. That is why Paul emphasizes the inseparable relationship between doctrine and life. Watch your doctrine and your life. By it you will save yourself and your hearers. There's an essential relationship between these two. Wrong doctrine produces right, wrong life. Right doctrine 
makes right life possible. Martin Luther taught that doctrine has to be right first if we are to experience true reformation of behavior. R.C. Sproul said, It is hard for us to grow to full maturity in Christ if our understanding of the things of God are not right in the first place. And so that is why Paul spent 11 chapters on theology. And then it was only in chapter 12 where he got it to application. Some people just skip chapters 1 through 11. Oh, theology. Oh, so much doctrine. Tell me, what must I do? Should I eat this meat or not? Right? Should I go to this market or not? Should I wear this head covering or not? I mean, that's just a, we want practical information. We don't want theology. We don't want foundational truths. But Paul labors to, to set that foundation because without that foundation of right doctrine, it's going to lead us astray. Ephesians 1, through, 1, 2, and 3, all high theology. 4, 5, and 6 application. Colossians 1 and 2, high theology. 3 and 4 application. Again and again and again. By his practice, he's teaching us the fundamental place of sound doctrine. Thirdly, why doctrine is important? Well, for me, I'm a biblical pragmatist. I believe in what works. Right? I believe, right, in doing what works. And only truth works. Only truth works. Only the true gospel saves. Only the Word of God sanctifies. Romans 1.16, John 17.17. 17. I am committed to these biblical doctrines because apart from them, salvation is impossible. And I want to save people. I want our church to save people. Or God to use us to save people. I want to be sanctified. I want our church to be sanctified. And the only thing that works is right doctrine. Look, if, if, if drama worked, I'll, I'll be in a play, right? If movie clips worked, I'll show movies. If dancing worked, I'll get somebody else to dance, right? <laughs> Discouraging. But these things do not work. They're ineffectual. There's no potency in these things. There's a lot of song and dance. Feels good for that moment. It's like junk food. Feels good going down. But there are no nutrients. There is no health benefit. Kids might clamor for candy, but parents, good parents, don't give and feed them candy for dinner. Because for kids to grow, they need good, nutritious foods. Likewise in the church. Only the gospel saves. And only truth sanctifies. That is why doctrine is so important. Fourthly, protection from error. Protection from error gives us discernment, grants us discernment. You know, as a young Christian, I had so much zeal, but I lacked doctrine, so I lacked discernment. So I just bought everything. I welcomed it. I believed everything. I believed. So if you believe in everything, what do you believe? Nothing. Right? Does that make sense? If you believe in everything, you don't believe in anything. And that's what I was. That's good. Everything's good. Everything's fine. Everything's right. Right? It's all, you know, degreed. It's all gray. Right? No discernment. There was no protection from error. Blown and tossed by the waves of every wind of doctrine, every cunning idea that came along the, around the corner, I was a victim to because lacking doctrine. 
And finally, it's a command of the Scriptures. It's a command of God. Matthew 28, 19, 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Everything. He didn't tell us to, to d- distinguish and have the authority to discern which are the important parts and the unimportant parts. Which are the priority statements and, and, and lower priority. Teach them everything because all of it is important. All of it is true. If it was not important, He would not have given it to us. It would not be in the Scriptures. It's a command of God for us to know, study, live, teach everything that is commanded in the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14, what you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, sound doctrine. Guard this deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it and pass it on. So Paul is saying to Timothy, do you see how important, essential, right, biblical doctrine is the Christian faith and to the Christian church? I'll conclude this part with a quote by James L. Sullivan, past president of the Sunday School Board, and he wrote this in 1975. Biblical doctrines are more important than we realize. They not only express our experiences and beliefs, they also determine our directions as a church. They shape our programs. They are to the church essentially what the backbone is to the human body. They give unity and stability. They provide sturdiness, enabling us to endure the bumps of opposition, even persecution. Doctrines are of the most importance, whether they are oral or written. They systematize our expressions of faith. They express our experiences in written, understandable form. They proclaim to others our Christian testimonies. They constitute the framework in which we carry on our daily activities. The church which neglects to teach doctrine weakens its membership, works against its unity, invites instability in its fellowship, lessens conviction among its members, and stalemates its future progress. It is impossible for us to exaggerate the importance of doctrine. This truth needs to be stressed constantly before every believer." We cannot exaggerate the importance of doctrine. Pop Christianity says doctrine is unimportant. It's irrelevant. That is my greatest challenge in talking with believers. Just getting them to understand and believe that doctrine is important. Let alone what these doctrines are. When the truth is, we can't exaggerate the importance of sound doctrine. cannot emphasize it. Let's move on to the next question. How do we decide on sound doctrine? How do we determine, how do we ascertain um, truth? What is sound doctrine? It's not by majority. Not by majority. We don't take a vote. We don't survey churches and say 74% of Christians in America believe this, that men are born tabula rasa, blank slate, neutral. Right. Therefore, we can't say 74% people are wrong, so 
We vote on it. No. We don't say, well, there are one billion Roman Catholics in the world today. They all believe we're saved by faith and works, therefore they must be right. No, truth by definition is narrow. We don't vote on it. It's not by majority. It is not by culture. Truth is not in this world. That's the whole implicit declaration of the scriptures, that truth is contained in a book. It's not in the culture. We don't look for truth in the world, in literature, in the arts, in movies, in songs. Truth is not in, in this world. It's contained in a book. Truth is not determined by people with unique and special authority. Right? The, it's not like the person with the biggest hat makes the decisions. Right? You know, see these uh, priests in their garb and that's their authority. I have the biggest hat. I have the most ornaments in my robe and I determine right, what the truth is, what right doctrine is, what God's will is. No, it's not by people with special experiences. You know, they went to hell, they went to purgatory, they went to heaven. They saw angels, they saw four, five, ten, whatever. Therefore, they have special authority to declare God's will. No. It's not by feeling, it's not by mysticism, it's not meditating on our, on our navel and saying truth is within me, trying to discern what God's will is for me, follow our hearts and discern truth according to how we feel. Like Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, beyond cure. Who can understand it? The greatest liar, the greatest deceiver in the world is our hearts. The last thing we want to believe is our hearts. A sure road to being led astray. No, these are not the sources of biblical doctrine, of sound theology. Source of sound theology. You know this. It's the Word of God. Word of God. One of the four solas from the Reformation is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Right. You have a banner. Right. Corner sign. Sola scriptura. Right. Scripture alone. Luther declared those words. That was one of the greatest rediscoveries of the Reformation. That the Word of God comes to us in the form of a book. And only that book. Luther said with resounding forcefulness in 1545, the year before he died, that the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. Luther called the Bible the external word to emphasize that it is objective, fixed, outside ourselves, and therefore unchanging. Truth is contained in a book. Neither ecclesiastical hierarchy nor fanatical ecstasy can replace it or shape it. It is external like God. You can take it or leave it, but you cannot change it. You cannot make it other than what it is. It is a book with fixed letters and words and sentences. And it is the source of sound theology. Let me just give you a brief uh, review of Luther's life and how he came to these conclusions and what it means for us and why scripture is the sole basis of sound theology. He was 21 years when he became an Augustinian monk. He said, in the monastery, I did not think about women. 
money, or possessions. Instead, my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow His grace on me. For I had strayed from faith and could not but imagine that I had angered God, whom I in turn had to appease by doing good works. So I couldn't escape the thought, I couldn't escape the thought that I had angered God because of my lack of faith. He said, listen to this, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head with joy. If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. On Easter 1507, he was ordained to the priesthood. On May 2nd of that year, he celebrated his first Mass. He was so overwhelmed at the thought of God's majesty, he almost ran away. He paused in the middle of Mass. His friend asked him what happened. He said, at that holy moment, I didn't love God. I hated God. Love God, I hate Him. Luther, what are you talking about? How can you hate God? I hate God because He expects me to be righteous. And that is impossible for sinners. That is impossible for me. It is a mockery. It is a cosmic joke where God demands of me righteousness, perfection, and it is impossible, and therefore He's angry with me. Therefore, sometimes I hate God. He was meditating on Romans 1.17, where it says, In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. He said, That had always stood in my way. I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I have been taught to understand it philosophically as active righteousness with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly mummering greatly, I was angry with God. Thus I raged with fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat upon Paul at that place. I beat upon it, beat upon it, beat upon Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, He through faith is righteous, shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. It's righteousness that we earn, we are given, we are granted, imputed, not by works, but by faith. It is a gift. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed, not by judgment, but by the gospel. And by faith in it, we are made righteous. That the merciful God justifies us by faith. It is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. He was a monk. He was an ordained priest. 
And he says here, by reading Romans 1.17, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Therefore I ran through the scriptures from memory. All the verses that he had memorized, he ran through them and his eyes were open to the glory of God's salvation through faith alone and the gospel alone. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the righteousness of God. Thus that place in Paul was for me truth. The gate to paradise. For him, truth was not in the church, not in his culture, not in his feeling. The truth was found in the word of God and thus he was saved and the reformation was born. And one of the first things he did was translate the Bible into German. The Bible was kept in Latin. All the masses were conducted in Latin. The people didn't know the Bible, no truth, no God's word. They just believed the church, ate the bread, drank the cup, and just went through these rituals without knowing the truth. Therefore, they were lost in sin. First thing he did was translate the Bible into their language. They might know sound doctrine and be set free. The source of sound theology. They wanted to have a debate, pretense of a debate at Worms. They had a diet at Worms and Luther went expecting to dialogue with the Catholic leaders. Jonathan Eck and his sword to, to dialogue and debate uh, about these cardinal doctrines. When he presented himself before the council, they just had two questions. They laid out his writings before him on a table and asked him, are these your writings? He looked them over and said, yes, these are my writings. And they said, do you recant? These go against our church councils. These go against the authority of the Pope. These go against the canons of the Roman Catholic Church. Do you recant? Or we will treat you like a heretic like Jan Hus. Jan Hus believed the same things and he was burned at the stake. He was martyred for these doctrines and you will face the same end if you will not recant. The bold Luther, the mighty man of God, you know what he said? He stood for him and he said, can I have one day? <laughs> can I think this over? They said, sure, it'll give you 24 hours. Went to his room. And what book did he open? Did he open the teachers of the law, scholarly material? Did he open commentaries? He opened the Bible, the source of right theology. And he prayed to God, God, if I am wrong, Humble me. Open my eyes. Show me the truth. Lead me in the way. It's a gift to the church, the rich inheritance of the Reformation. The whole Reformation was hanging on this line. There were men like Thomas Chambers, who was a reformer, you know, one of the Puritans, a nonconformist in the 18th century. You know, he was one of the leading reformers of the Church of England. And he recanted. And he discouraged so many believers. So he signed the document saying he recants salvation by faith alone. Believes in the power of, of the Eucharist, of communion, of the authority of the human Catholic Church. But they burned him at the stake anyways because they didn't believe his recantation. So while he was being burned at the stake, he recanted of his recantation. And he lowered his hands that his hand might burn first. 
Because he said, with this hand I signed my recantation and I betrayed my faith to save my life. And so my hand deserves to be burned first. Right? Our reformation was hanging in the balance. If he recanted, what? What a disaster. Next morning he comes and stands before the council. And this is what he said. When, he, when asked if he would recant of his teachings, he said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience would be neither right nor safe. God help me, here I stand, I can do no other. How awesome is that? Unless I'm convinced by Scripture or replaying reasoning from the Scriptures, my conscience is captive to God's Word. It's the sole source of truth. I cannot, will not recant anything. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Sola Scriptura. The Word of God alone. Word of God is the only source for truth, only source for God's will. That is our source as well. Reformation is not over. What is the source of our theology, our doctrine? What do we stand on? What do we hold to? What do we cling to? It's the Word of God alone. Next question then. Then Pastor James why is then wrong doctrine so prevalent? Why is erroneous, unsound, poisonous doctrine the norm in churches today rather than sound doctrine? What produces error, false teaching, false theology? So many. Number one reason, number one source is pride. Pride. Because we don't want to follow Christ. We don't want Christ to tell us how to live our lives. We don't want Christ to tell us how to lead our families, lead our church. We want to do what is right in our own eyes. Last verse of Judges. Right? In our high estimation of ourselves, of our scholarship, of our advanced theories, we trust man rather than God. Pride, we don't want to change. We don't want to submit to His Lordship. We don't want to wholly submit to God's Word. That's the reason for wrong doctrine. See how deadly pride is? Pride blinds. Pride paralyzes, incapacitates. Pride leads astray. pride, Pride is the most deadly thing to a Christian. Cause you to go against the Word of God. That's why when you are proud, God is opposed to you. 1 Peter 5. God is against you. God is not on your side. God is not behind you. God is not for you. If you are proud, God is against you and is against me. Because when we're proud, we're against God's Word. Every church says that their authority is the Word of God. But is the Word of God their functional authority? Practically, is the Word of God their authority? Do they practice church discipline? I tell people, if your church doesn't practice church discipline, leave that church because Christ has left that church. Because the Word of God is a stated authority, but it's not the real authority. 
It's not the functional authority. It's everything else but Christ, but the Word. If they will not confront sin, Christ is holy, God is holy, sin must be confronted. We're all sinners. We all must confess. If anyone says they have not sinned, they are liars, they're deceived, we must confess and confront sin. If your church, if your leaders, spiritual leaders are not willing to do that, you must leave that church because Christ has already left. Pride produces wrong doctrine. Second, pragmatism. A ministry is driven by success, driven by popularity, driven by growth. I experienced this firsthand years ago when I was part of another church. I was serving as an English pastor, I went to the Korean pastor, and I said, well, I'm serving under you as, a, as your associate, as your junior pastor, I want to submit to you. Here are my, here's my doctrinal statement. Here's what I believe. I submit them to you. Can I have your doctrinal statement so I know what to submit to, and where I can submit to and where I can't. Can I have your doctrinal statement, or what you believe, or just a summary of what you believe? And his response to me was, nobody knows what my doctrine is. It's invisible. I'm like, what do you mean it's invisible? It's like invisible ink you put under a light. You know, it comes out. No, no, it's invisible. Nobody knows. Even I don't know what I believe. I, honestly, what do you mean? He said, I don't want anyone to not come to our church or to leave our church because of doctrine. So we have no doctrinal stance. We're open to everyone. Why? Because we want to grow. We want to grow. Pragmatism. One of the reasons for wrong doctrine. Uh, laziness. Simple laziness. We live in a uh, very lazy culture. Where people spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time working on their physical body and equally inordinate, lack of inordinate, lack of time in disciplining their minds. Right? People love the amusement park where, you know, muse is thinking. Ah is you know, not. Where they don't want to think. They don't have to think. Right? They, want, they listen to music constantly, watch movies, they go to amusement parks. Why? Why? Because they don't want to think. They don't know how to think. They don't know how to meditate. They don't know how to study. And these are pastors I'm talking about, right? Not churches. See, I understand believers, right? You guys are busy, but at least pastors should sit and study the Bible. Right? I mean, what's the problem here? Like, pastors should study original languages. They should know English grammar. They should know like logic and, and reasoning. And they should know this simple thing of law of non-contradiction. You can't hold two opposing viewpoints at the same time. I mean, it's like basic philosophy 101 issues. Like pastors are lazy and they don't study the word. And they go up there and just kind of, you know, they wing it. Week after week, they just wing it. And, and if, if you wing it, wrong things are going to be taught. Wrong, false doctrine. Two more, low view of sin. A high view of man, low view of sin. They have a high esteem of ourselves and we think we're good, we know truth. And Final one is fear of man, people pleasing. I think all of us, we want to be liked. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to go against the grain, swim against the flow, you know, all of that. We want to please people. We don't want to stand out. We want to conform. We want people to like us. So we compromise on doctrine. Compromise on doctrine. Well, we'll get to the end. Um, what doctrines are fundamental or secondary? Right. 
fundamental doctrines are all doctrines that deal with salvation. Where if you don't believe these doctrines, you're going to hell. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. Deity of Christ, fundamental doctrine, because if you don't believe in the deity of Christ, you're going to hell. Trinity, right? Salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith, through, by the word of God alone, in Christ alone, fundamental doctrine, right? God's sovereignty, immutability of God, omniscience of God, omnipresence of God, all the attributes of God, essential doctrines, the attributes of Christ, attributes of the Holy Spirit, all essential because apart from that, you're not believing the real God, therefore, your faith is a sham. Your sins are, sins remain. There's no hope. These doctrines are fundamental. And every clear command of Scripture, every direct statement of Scripture are fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Every moral teaching, do not commit adultery, fundamental doctrine, do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, right? do not murder. These are fundamental doctrines. We can't compromise when God has clearly, explicitly declared His will. We must stand. Secondary doctrines, where there is degree of variance, degree of flexibility, degree of where we can agree to disagree, are issues of eschatology, pre, mid, post, you know, tribulation, right? I mean, church government. Some churches have senior pastors. Some churches have elder plurality, congregational rule. We believe, you know, God's will is the Bible teaches us, but we don't make an issue of that. I mean, you know, head covering issue, if you want to cover your head, you know, more power to you. Not for the brothers, for the sisters, right? We're not going to make an issue of that, a secondary doctrine. That's an interpretive issue, right? It doesn't affect your salvation, it's not a direct, clear statement of the scriptures. Apart from that, there is relative freedom. Formula for discernment is 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, 22. Test everything. Hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil. Acts 17.11, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul, was said, Paul said was true. But test everything. Right. Test Pastor James. Test Dr. Phil. Test your mom and dad. Test your children. Test Reader's Digest, Time Magazine. You know, test, you know, the radio stations test everything according to the canon of God's word. Right? Avoid every kind of evil. Throw it out. If it passes the test, if what they say is consistent with the Bible, you accept it not because they're the authority, but the authority of Scripture acknowledges that what they're saying is true. Close our time with just a few final thoughts. A few final thoughts about the importance of right doctrine individually and as a church. Um, to have right doctrine, you must identify wrong beliefs that you currently hold, currently have. You must examine your own, own belief system, your own paradigm. How do you do that? And this is where we deceive ourselves. What you believe is not what you believe. What you believe is what you do. Your attitudes, your decisions, your behavior reveal what you really believe. See, every, you know, if I were to read the statement of faith at Cornerstone, you would all say, oh, I, I believe in all of that. I have right doctrine. Oh, let's go home. Let's, you know, meet church when Christ comes back and we're done, right? No. What you believe is not what you believe. What you believe is what you practice. 
day in and day out. So you say you believe in God's sovereignty, but you're filled with worry, filled with anxiety, right? filled with fear. And in a sense, you believe in God's sovereignty, but you still need to grow in the belief of God's sovereignty. Because how, how you live your life reveals that that doctrine is not settled in your mind. You believe that God is holy, but yet you're toying with temptation, you're running to temptation, you're living in sin, the private areas of your life, you're involved in impurity. Yes, you believe in the foundational level of God's holiness. But practically, you're living as a practical atheist because you don't believe in God's holiness. You say you believe that Jesus is the only way to, cross, only way to God, only way to salvation. Look at your life of evangelism. Are you a closet universalist? Or you believe everybody will go to heaven? No, no, I don't believe that. I believe Jesus is the only way. Then, how is your prayer life for the lost? How fervently are you sharing the gospel? Or desiring to share the gospel? You believe that God is merciful and kind and caring. Well, look at your prayer life. Do you go to God with your concerns? Do you pour out your hearts before the Lord? That's how you can discern what you really believe about doctrine. By looking at your life, not looking at your statement of faith, not looking at your mind, but looking at your life, holding the mirror of God's word and saying, that's what I believe, then you can start to grow in doctrine. Right? Secondly, understand that uh, right doctrine is not, an, uh, it's not a Microsoft update. Uh, you have your, like, what is that platform, Microsoft XP, what is that, huh? Right? Basic platform, whatever you call it. No help, okay. <laughs> right? So you're not just updating here. You have your belief system. This is what you think about life, God, family, friends, church. Oh, and you just update it. You add right doctrine. No. You need to reformat your hard drive. Right? Why not? Reformat your hard drive where you've got to erase everything. Oh, but Pastor James, my, my Word documents, all my pictures, all my you know, precious like, you know, pictures of my you know, family. Okay, you can keep them, but you have to go through them one by one to make sure there are no viruses attached to it. Right? You need to do a virus scan with the Word of God and go through it individually if you want to transfer that to your new hard drive. You've got to reformat it. It's a radical reorientation of how you think. Not just what you think. I've got to believe this now. It's how you think. You think now, what does the Bible say? What are the biblical principles here? What does the Scriptures teach me? What is God's will? You don't think, what do I think? What do my parents say? What do I feel like doing? What, is, what do I feel is right? What does my heart say? That's the old way of thinking. You need to re radically, it's not paradigm shift. It's, you destroy your own paradigm and build a whole new paradigm of, the, of what, but more importantly, how you think and thinking doctrinally, principally, biblically. Right? And then thirdly, understand that the ultimate goal is not right doctrine ultimate goal secondary goal is right life we want right doctrine to translate into right life if all we have is right doctrine then we've done half the work we're not glorifying to Christ so so many Christians so many churches have right doctrine because, but because they don't do the hard work of right life it produces pride 
stagnancy, complacency, and they atrophy as believers and as a church. And they undermine these doctrines where people say, that's what happens if you believe in God's sovereignty. No one at their church has gotten saved in 12 years. No one's come to the faith. That's what happens if you believe in unconditional election. That's what happens if you believe in lordship salvation. These things happen. That's what happens if you hold to the inerrancy of God's word, undermines right doctrine. We must do the more difficult work of living out these doctrines day to day in our lives. The ultimate purpose of right doctrine, right life, is God's glory. It's not that people will say, oh, what a good people we are. What a great church cornerstone is. Please, let's not be proud of Cornerstone. Let's not boast of our church. Let's boast of Christ, for He's the author and perfecter of all things. And give Him glory for right doctrine and right life. Father, we do thank You and praise You. Father, we thank You for these truths, for these precious truths of the Word of God. We know and believe that Reformation is not over that every generation of of believers and every Christian is responsible to go back to the Scriptures and to discover God's will for their lives and for for their families and for their churches. And that responsibility is now ours. May each of us privatize these truths and make them our own and live and run according to its paths. Oh Lord, it is our earnest and heartfelt prayer that we would honor these truths by our lives, that we would be strong Christians, strong believers, a strong church, nourished and fueled by sound teachings of the Word of God. May our consciences be captive to God's Word. May we, with your help, stand on God's Word and do no other. In Jesus' name, Amen.